Hello, uh, my name is Doreen Lawrence. I'm Stephen Lawrence's mum. I'm also known as um, Doreen Lawrence, Baroness Lawrence of Clarendon. And when I'm here at the House of Laws, um, people refer to me as Lady Lawrence. Stephen, the young person just like you, had dreams and aspiration, and Stephen was denied that. Stephen's life was cut short for no other reason um, but the colour of his skin. I think the impact of Stephen's death has been quite profound in this country. Um, where laws have been changed, I don't think anything has had that impact, ever. I want people to see all the positive things and not the negative things that came out of Stephen. He was always an extrovert, but I think even this would have floored him a bit. I see the Stephen Lawrence Day as celebrating a mark in Stephen's life to um, look at the positiveness of what can come out of something as tragic as Stephen's death. I like to use the Stephen Lawrence Day to be the best that you can be and to live your best life. Go out there and make your community a better and safer place. You know, start learning to be more tolerant of each other and to be more inclusive. And your small actions can make big changes. I want to say to a young person that your life matters. Your life matters. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 104 of the History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and as always I'll be your host today. Now this episode comes out um, around the time of the 30th anniversary of the death of Stephen Lawrence which falls on the 22nd of April 2023 and that was Doreen Lawrence or Baroness Lawrence speaking in 2019 on a YouTube video for De Montfort University um, on the anniversary of his death or for the anniversary of Stephen's death um, and that's a day that we know as Stephen Lawrence Day the 22nd of April. This year 2023 marks the 30th anniversary of his death and this is an event that happened before I was born but I can't really remember a time in my life where I didn't know what had happened to Stephen Lawrence um, and I didn't know that justice had not been served um, because that was something that didn't come about for 19 years and arguably has still not come about um, and we'll get into the ins and outs of, of what actually happened because I realise I'm speaking to potentially a generation of people that, like me were born after um, the murder of Stephen Lawrence and don't actually necessarily know the ins and outs of the case and, and understand that there were insane failings by the Metropolitan Police and institutional racism at play um, and racism at the kind of core of his murder but maybe don't understand just how it for me anyway is so phenomenal that you get a clip and words like that coming from Doreen Lawrence in 2019 after what her and her family have actually been through um, and went through and had to absolutely battle and fight for for a very long time and continue to fight today um for this episode we'll be using um some clips from youtube um from interviews done by the lawrence family from neville um stephen's dad and doreen his mom um and also um i read not all of but for in the majority doreen lawrence's book and still i rise a mother's search for justice um and so i'll be kind of using 
information that comes from police reports and from the media, from the news, as well as those sources, in order to put together today's episode, just kind of explaining what happened um, to Stephen Lawrence and the fight for justice that followed. On the 22nd of April 1993, 18-year-old Stephen Lawrence, black boy from South East London, was waiting at the bus stop in Eltham with his friend Dwayne Brooks when they were attacked by a gang of white youths. Dwayne was able to escape, but Stephen had been stabbed multiple times, and after managing somehow to run 100 metres from the scene, he collapsed and bled to death. Following his murder, several people came forward to the police to name a local gang in connection with the crime. Notes were left on a car windscreen and a telephone box with the names of the suspects, Gary Dobson, brothers Neil and Jamie Acourt, Luke Knight and David Norris, who had all been linked with previous knife attacks and racist incidents in the area. I have two timeline of events um, in front of me. One of them is from the BBC and another one is from David Gilborn's book, Racism and Education, Coincidence or Conspiracy. And one of the chapters is about the Stephen Lawrence case. And I just wanted to read out um, some of the kind of analysis of, of what happened in the kind of immediate aftermath of um, Stephen's murder and it's quite a difficult thing I think to string together an episode like this and put it together because depending on when this a person um, whether connected or not with um, Stephen Lawrence's murder when they're writing is kind of going to have a great impact on what happened because of the longevity of um, this case and how it's been kind of dragged out in a way because justice was not and has not been um, achieved. And so as I read kind of different things out, I'll, I'll make sure to kind of explain when they come from. And once you get into the timeline, I think it will become clear as to why it's important to kind of notify you as a listener of the dates that things are being written on because policy changes as time goes on and different things are uncovered and different people are kind of heading up the investigation and they're not. Um, and things change as this kind of investigation and I say investigation, there are several investigations by different people um, that occur. Um, and so I'll read this out and then we'll go into the timeline because things will make more sense, I think, then. So David Gilborn writes in 2008 um, and he says, Stephen was by no means the first black young man to be murdered in an unprovoked racist attack on British streets. And he was not the last. But his case was set apart by the courage and endurance of his parents, Doreen and Neville Lawrence, who waged a campaign for justice that made national headlines and continues to this day. From the beginning, the investigation was dogged by police incompetence, disdain, racism and possibly corruption. Shortly after witnessing his friend's murder, Dwayne Brooks was questioned by police, who thought him very agitated, and their quotes that came from the public inquiry, and aggressive. The public inquiry concluded that Mr Brooks was stereotyped as a young black man exhibiting unpleasant hostility and agitation, who could not be expected to help and whose condition and status simply did not need further examination or understanding. Stephen's parents were equally badly treated, seen by officers as troublesome and interfering. They too were labelled as aggressive. 
And that was David Gilborn kind of explaining the initial onset of this racism um, and in the context of, you know, the victim's family and close friends that have been essentially traumatised um, losing a loved one in such a violent and, and malicious and, and disgusting way. And then you have this um, lack of care, compassion, lack of any kind of positive treatment of um, the family and close friends by the police, even, you know, as they are trying to investigate what happened. In Doreen Lawrence's book published in 2006, she starts a preface and it reads, Two lives ended one chilly April night 13 years ago. One was the life of my eldest son. You don't have to be a mother to understand what that means. But perhaps only the parents of children can truly imagine what the loss is like. My son did not die in a car crash or a plane crash. He was murdered by a gang of violent racist boys and they got away with it. They remain unpunished to this day. The second life that ended was the life I thought was mine. Since my son Stephen was killed with such arrogance and contempt, I've had a different life, one that I can hardly recognise as my own. You think that you know your place in the world and that you're safe there. In your part of it, that nothing can harm you except illness or old age. We all have this sense of security, this belief that the world will let us be as long as we do nothing to provoke it. I know I did, until late at night that day in the spring of 1993. I wish I could not say so precisely when my life changed, but there it is. There was a knock on the door and voices in the hallway and I heard my then-husband speaking. I wish I had never heard what the voices were saying. After that night, I was a different person. The case of Stephen Lawrence um, and what happened after, I think it's always difficult, especially maybe our generation um, and those born after he was murdered, see Doreen especially as this kind of beacon of strength um, and all the fight and work she did to um, battle against institutional racism and get the ruling that was um, put out in the McPherson report in 99. Um, We kind of see that and I think it's easy to forget, for me anyway, that the life of a young boy that had friends and family people that loved and cared about him, was taken so brutally. And then this family were forced to relive that and still relive that to this day um, as they continue to fight for justice and then go on to fight for others and fight for a better Britain uh, for black people and people that might be marginalised for other reasons. Now, I'm going to go into this timeline and it's quite a detailed one um, that's in this book. And it is, it does finish in 2006. So then I think I will jump into um, parts of the timeline that the BBC have used um, when talking about um, Stephen Lawrence's murder. But essentially, it, it think it draws the balance importantly between policy and, and bits in the investigation and, and important parts of it um, alongside things that were happening within public policy in Britain that were linking up to institutional racism um, and as well as other kind of public events that coincided with this timeline um, that 
highlighted a real kind of lack of any change or any movement forwards as people, um, young men were, were still being killed by police in custody, racially motivated, or by white people in racist attacks. So on the 22nd of April 1993, as we've said, Stephen Lawrence is murdered. Between April and May of, of that year, relations between the Lawrence family and the police become strained. Vital leads go unchecked. Stephen's friends are quizzed repeatedly, and this is something I always remember uh, from the case and hearing about, um, about which gang Stephen belonged to. The answer, none, greeted with surprise. Um, police surveillance officers see the prime suspects disposing of large rubbish bags, but do not ever check their contents. The police accuse the family of being unhelpful and resent their solicitor asking questions about the progress of the investigation. Their lawyer being Imran Khan KC, who has represented them uh, from that time and, and been with them and been part of the fight for justice um, with the family. On the 6th of May, Doreen and Neville Lawrence meet Nelson Mandela in London. And in a statement to the press, Nelson Mandela says, and I quote, The Lawrence tragedy is our tragedy. I'm deeply touched by the brutality of the murder. Brutality that we are all used to in South Africa, where black lives are cheap. And Doreen speaks on the fact that why, and I quote, is it that a leader from a foreign country shows us sympathy when our government has expressed no interest at all, they, Stephen's killers, are walking, eating and drinking, and my son is lying on some slab. On the 7th of May, there are three arrests of Neil Acourt, Jamie Acourt and Gary Dobson. The 10th of May, David Norris is arrested, and the 3rd of June, Luke Knight is arrested. In June, two men appear in court charged with Stephen's murder. 700 people gather at the memorial service for Stephen. In her book, Doreen Lawrence speaks about the fact that while Stephen dies in April, his body is actually not released to the family um, until, or they're told, until the whole procedure of bringing charges had been completed. Um, also, the fact that five people were arrested, they could, with their own uh, legal teams, insist the right to separate post-mortems which means Stephen could be opened up five times for them to all have a post-mortem done. And she says, and I quote, they seem to have more rights as suspect murderers than we did as grieving parents. They could hold Stephen's body for a year if they wanted to, and I could not bear that, and argued that the process should be cut short. So it was agreed with the coroner that there would be one independent post-mortem, and he took responsibility for ensuring that whatever information came out of that would be disseminated to the solicitors of all those charged, so that each did not have to go through the same procedure. Once the order was given and the examination carried out, they let us have Stephen's body. Then it was decided of where Stephen would be buried. And I just find this element of the case, you know, at this point of the timeline, we're still in 1993. And the family, from the offset of being questioned about his murder to the point of actually, you know, finding evidence within Stephen's body um, in regards to the post-mortem, are just repeatedly being put through trauma. Five times to have a post-mortem done. Why is that even a law? Um, why is that even a thing? 
And the fact that, you know, every step of the way they're having to battle, no, we're not going to have five done, we're going to do one independently, that's going to be sent out to solicitors. Every single step of the way there is a battle for this family, and you're going to, you'll hear it as I go through this timeline, but it just absolutely has me shocked and stunned that this is the process that they went through. And as Doreen says, how is it that a leader in a foreign country as far away as South Africa can understand and have more compassion than the British government and the British police force themselves are meant to be investigating this case in the UK? Then there was a question of Berry and Stephen, and I didn't know this actually before I started um, researching this episode, but it was actually decided that he would not be buried in England. And the family were obviously thinking to potentially bury him in South East London, where they lived and where he was familiar with, um, but decided actually that they would not. The final resting place um, for Stephen Lawrence was actually in Jamaica, in Clarendon, um, where Doreen was born um, and next to his great-grandmother um, at a spot that isn't publicly known. Um, Doreen, and quite interestingly, says, um, here nobody knows where he is. Then again, I don't think the country deserves to have his body there anyway because they took his life. She goes on to say, I am really pleased that I have buried him here because had he been buried in the UK his grave would have been desecrated so many times. And I think that's probably one of... That last, the whole story is heartbreaking, but that is one of the saddest parts. The fact that at that point in the inquiry, and realistically at that point, you know, things weren't the worst that we were going to be. You know, the fact that the family aren't comfortable enough to even have him laid to rest in, in the UK... And the fact that his um, kind of memorial place, the, the place where he was murdered on Wellhall Road, South East London, has been desecrated, you know? That has actually happened. So God forbid if he was actually buried here and his grave was publicly um, known, what would have happened to that? As if he did anything but lose his life at the hands of racism for then in death, his place of rest not even to be respected, um, really does signify, I think, how absolutely disgusting so many aspects of this case are. Um, back to the timeline, we left off um, at the point of June 1993, where um, several hundred people gather um, at the memorial service for Stephen, uh, in South East London at the church he would have attended um, with his family and they they really do shut down the roads, they shut down the area um, as they proce- proceed to take the coffin um, through the streets um, because the family really want to make it known what's happened. They're not going to hide away, bury him quietly, you know, they are going to show people what's happened and interestingly in reading Doreen's book there's a point where she references um them going through some of the roads that have shops on and all the shops had their shutters down they were closed that day they were not doing business and people really came out to uh, probably as best they could support the family as they said goodbye um in this service to Stephen and I think at this point it's important to note that 
there's no justice has been done. No, no one has been sent to prison. No one has been formally charged for this. Um, in a sense of, sorry, they've been arrested and charged, but not actually found guilty of. Um, and so it's made very clear in a statements put out by the family, Neville, um, I think puts it out and says, you know, whilst we're burying Stephen, we are not burying our fight when it comes to finding justice for him. Um, and he really meant that. They did really mean that as a family. Now, by the time we get to, to the end of the July, 29th of July, charges are dropped against um, two of the youths as the Crown Prosecution Service, the CPS, declares there's insufficient evidence to continue. By the 15th of August, the Met Police announce a review of the investigation, the Barker Review, despite failings, clear failings by the police to actually bring anyone to justice um, at this point. The investigation um, is said to have been progressing satisfactorily. Um, and I quote, relations were hampered by the involvement of active politically motivated groups and the investigation had been undertaken with professionalism and dedication. Um, so they are finding no issues with the investigation at this stage in August 1993. New evidence by the CPS is rejected by the time we get to 1934, a year on. Um, and there is insufficient um, evidence to support a murder charge, apparently. So, in 1995, in April, the Lawrence family launches a private prosecution. So, at this point before, it's the state um, that are prosecuting these men. But the Lawrence family actually launch a prosecution themselves. David Norris, Jamie Acourt, Neil Acourt and Luke Knight, and they appear at Greenwich Magistrates Court. In September, Neil Acourt and Luke Knight are sent for trial at the Old Bailey, and Gary Dobson is sent for trial by December. But this is 1994. We're already a year on, um, beyond a year of the murder. Um, and as you know, in someone's called to trial, trial doesn't just happen the next week. Um, it happens a while later. And in April 1996, private prosecution collapses. Um, and it's Mr Justice Curtis rules that key identification evidence as unreliable and directs the jury to return not guilty verdicts. Um, the case ends before the jury can view surveillance videotape of the accused brandishing knives, saying that, and I quote, uh, and a warning for racial language uh, that some may find offensive. Um, they said, and I quote, every nigger should be chopped up and routinely left home with concealed weapons like knives. It just must be so crazy, but also so frustrating because... It seems to be the case, and obviously I wasn't alive, but everybody knew who it was. It was just common knowledge to the point, I think it's the Daily Mail on the front page accuse the five men mentioned, Gary Dobson, Neil Acourt, Jamie Acourt, Luke Knight and David Norris, of murder. And the headline, like, take a look at it if you have a chance, um, on the front cover says, murderers, in bold, underlined. Mm -hmm. The male accuses these men of killing. If we are wrong, let them sue us. Um, and, you know, that is there on the 14th of February, 1997. This is now coming to three years. And as I said, it seems like everybody knows who did it. Yet they're walking around scot-free and arrogant at, at that. Um, so, you know, cool and so unbothered by the fact that they've done something so violent and disgusting um and you know this is kind of the, the what the family have to deal with 
uh, on the one side, the police who are just absolutely incompetent and doing absolutely nothing, reporting and doing investigations on themselves and patting themselves on the back saying that progress is satisfactory. Then you have the the actual murderers walking around scot-free. Um, and as much as the public are supporting them in a way, um, there is an element of, you know, well, this is just Britain, this is just racism and this is another day. Yet the family are having to go through this fight and this battle and this agony of loss. In April 1997, um, Jack Straw, the shadow Home Secretary, so he's for the Labour Party and the Conservative Party are in power at this point, meet with the Lawrences to discuss their case. Michael Howard, who is the actual Home Secretary, uh, as opposed to the um, shadow um, as a Conservative MP, has repeatedly refused to meet with them. So they're meeting Jack Straw. Um, but by the 1st of May, the Conservative government um, that refused to call for a public inquiry into the case is replaced by Tony Blair's, quote, New Labour. Um, and so by the 31st of July, Jack Straw, who's now in Secretary, announces a public inquiry um, into um the case and it's going to be led by Sir William McPherson as we know the McPherson report um, comes out some years following. On the 15th of December in 97 the PCA's report the Police Complaints Authority um, which the Lawrence family registered a formal complaint against the Met with them in February of that year comes out and it reports that it does not find evidence of overt racism but identifies five officers who would have faced disciplinary charges had they now not retired. Mm, of course they've retired by now. By the time that police con complaints authority report comes out they've of course retired. So convenient. Um, so there is it's basically this element of bad apples, which we've spoken about before, within the police force, instead of going to the institution and calling it what it is, absolutely rotten to the core, they look at these five officers and say, oh, yep, they would have faced some disciplinary charges, these five bad apples, but they're all retired now, so we can't do anything about it. Um, and it's a McPherson report that later goes on and it does define what institutional racism is which isn't really properly defined prior to this and one of the reasons why the PCA report doesn't find any evidence of racism is because of the way racism is defined which the McPherson report says is quite limited um, in its scope and definition so not only does the McPherson report obviously give this kind of landmark ruling of institutional racism it actually defines it um, for one of the first times in, in policy and in law that we can kind of then go forward and use it and apply it to situations. Um, public hearings begin in 1998 in March. Um, and by the 20th of July, suspects are questioned by the inquiry. And then things start to get interesting as, you know, we get to the point where um, the McPherson report is being um, completed and, and written up and obviously eventually published but on the 1st of October um, 98 the head of the Metropolitan Police apologizes for the failure to prosecute the killers and again it's like everyone knows who did it why is it that in a court of law they can't get enough evidence to prosecute these people um, but yeah for the failure to prosecute the killers but def denies institutional racism in the force again bad apples bad apples not in a not a not a rotten tree just the apples because rotten apples can just magically come from um, a, a perfectly fine tree. 
And it is on the 24th of February 1999 that the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry Report is presented to Parliament and published. And the family, I believe, having read um, Doreen's kind of um, perspective and recount of events uh, from the time that the report was published, was that they, they got to read it the night before, but they were kind of ostracised from their legal team, apart from Imran Khan. Um, and so I think between him as the kind of only like legal representative, he was able to essentially read through and kind of really quickly disseminate to his team that are not with them physically the report and what it says, just to try and get like a like a step ahead of the, the fact that they're going to have to make um, responses in public they're going to be there when it's read out um in parliament and presented sorry they're going to have to give public statements they're going to be questioned you know the media are going to want to speak to them they don't have much time with it um and it is a very you know long document um in regards to a report it is a 350 page report that concludes essentially that the investigation was marred and i quote marred by a combination of professional incompetence, institutional racism and a failure of leadership. There's 70 recommendations. Most of them aim at improving police attitudes to racism and 67 of them actually led to changes within working practices um, or the law. It's a very influential report, probably one of the most influential reports in my living memory. Not that I remember 1999, I was literally a baby, but... Um, that being said, the kind of impacts in regards to race relations were quite clear. But again, this is all happening and they haven't been brought to justice. The murderers are still out there at large. 1999, six years on, this family have not had their day in court where they have seen the people that took their son away given a sentence, you know, found guilty, prosecuted. And speaking on this, Doreen says in her book... Um, when she's asked to kind of respond to the report, she says, I know the police were nervous in case I did ask for Condon's resignation, but my agenda was not to look for scapegoats. It was to find out what happened in Stephen's case and make sure that nothing like it ever happened again and to see that those boys went behind bars for my son's murder. Anything else that came out of it was a bonus. When the report came out, it was regarded as a defining moment in British race relations. We felt vindicated in our criticisms of the Metropolitan Police, who were found by the inquiry to suffer from institutional racism. This was defined as, quote, the collective failure of an organisation to provide an appropriate and professional service to people because of their colour, culture or ethnic origin. This is very important in the case and it's important in regards to race relations in Britain. Um, and, you know, 1999 is when it came out. We're, we're heading towards 25 years post-McPherson um, and, well, we're 30 years on from the murder of Stephen Lawrence and I don't know how much has changed when we've got things like the Casey Report that say that the police are still institutionally racist or are at this point institutionally racist, maybe not still, maybe things got better, then got worse again. Um, but I think it's important that, that we make note of these landmark pieces of policy and reports that come out of this case however at this point in 1999 um they're still free um the murderers of Stephen are still free and you know I've kind of gone over the first report very quickly <laughs> maybe too quickly but I think it's important that 
you know, we fit this into the timeline of, of what's happened. Because I honestly, hand on my heart, say, knowing about Stephen Lawrence, I did not know how long it took for a semblance of justice to come about. Because I'm already annoyed that we're at six years and 30 minutes into the podcast and I haven't talked about justice in a way that the family wanted to find the people that murdered her, their son. And, yeah, we're, we're not there yet. We're 32 minutes in and we still haven't got to that point six years on. So there will be another episode, I think, about the McPherson Report. It's something I've wanted to do for a while. But I think maybe it was important to do this episode first, to put the McPherson Report into the context of the murder of Stephen Lawrence and, and the fight that his family went on to get justice. You know, without them continuing this fight, McPherson doesn't happen. You know, the murder of Stephen Lawrence is a catalyst, unfortunate, a, a horrible one for these people involved and the lawyers, lawyers and their legal teams to really get behind um, the fight for justice and in doing that and in fighting for justice for their son, having to take on these giant institutions like the police and the government. In November 2000, there are amendments to the Race Relations Bill um, and these go through that seek to eliminate race discrimination um, on more than 45,000 public bodies, including all maintained schools and universities. Um, so this is where we see the kind of McPherson report having an impact on um, the laws and acts of this country, um, especially when it comes to race relations and racism. And then in 2002, in September... David Norris and Neil Acourt, who at this point are still accused um, and believed to be um, two of the five that have murdered Stephen Lawrence, are convicted of a racist attack on the same road where Stephen was murdered. The Guardian newspaper reported at the time, and I quote, Norris, a passenger in a car driven by Acourt, threw a drinks carton and shouted, nigger, at an off-duty detective constable Gareth Reed as he was crossing the road. They were sentenced to 18 months in prison, later cut to a year on appeal. Passing sentence, the judge said Norris and Acourt were both, and I quote, infected and invaded by gross and revolting racism. Again, another slap in the face, really, for the family and people that understood the extent of the racism of these people that have been accused and them actually showing themselves and being um, sentenced because of their race, racism, and still there's no justice for Stephen Lawrence at this point. Now, in 2003, in January, the Home Secretary, who is um, now David Blunkett, um, essentially, I don't know, just decides to, to go backwards in the understanding of institutional racism and says that the slogan created a year or two ago about institutional racism missed the point. It isn't institutions, it's patterns of work and processes that have grown up. It's people that make the difference. So again, thinking about this argument and this idea that it's all about like bad apples and, and racism that creates a culture which then has these negative um, consequences as opposed to actually the institutions that are just run at the core. Um, and it's something that people really do struggle to get to grips with even to, today. Um, and I think the Stephen Lawrence case highlights the kind of back and forth with this whilst you have... Um, the McPherson report very clearly stating institutional racism, defining it, and a lot of people accepting it. A lot of people also don't and push back against that, push back against this idea that it is the fault of institutions as opposed to individuals working within systems. 
And also on this timeline is the inclusion of others that have been killed either at the hands of police or um, others um, in racially motivated incidences. And on the 22nd of July 2005, Jean-Charles de Menez was killed by armed officers um, in a London tube station. He was a Brazilian electrician um, and he was pretty much killed instantly uh, when he was shot. Um, and wrongly so. Um, the government repeatedly refused requests from the family for a public inquiry. Um, barely a week later, the 29th of July, um, a man, a black teenager, called Anthony Walker, is murdered in Liverpool um, by two white youths. Um, so, again, these kind of instances of racism leading to death and such pain and anguish for families are very clear um, in 2005 and we're still at the point where there is still no justice for Stephen Lawrence. The murderers still have not been brought to justice at this point. Um, and then it is in September the 19th that the Home Secretary disbands the Stephen Lawrence Advisory Committee, which was a group established by Jack Straw to advise on the steps to be taken following the recommendation from the McPherson report. Um, some of the groups that kind of stand up and say something about that that I noted in this timeline are the National Black Police Association um, and Richard Stone, who an, was an advisor to the Lawrence Inquiry and a member of the group, um, speaks out about it as well. And this idea that um, New Labour don't really want anything to do with race, don't want to have these conversations. Um, and, you know, there's still a kind of promise from the Home Office that it will, this kind of um, ending and disbandment of the Stephen Lawrence Advisory Committee won't affect the commitment to race equality for the Home Office. But, I mean, a Home Office, race equality, they are very juxtaposed in terms, in my view. So um, I guess we can kind of understand just how strong that commitment was. In 2005, another very important um, piece of legislation um, was brought in, and that was um, in regards to double jeopardy. Um, the law was changed in 2005, allowing a second trial for most serious offensive, including murder, which obviously meant that, you know, should there be different evidence or um, an update within the investigation for the murder of Stephen Lawrence, those that had already um, been tried could be tried again, um, which is very important um, in this case. In July 2006, there's a BBC documentary that comes out. Um, it's called The Boys Who Killed Stephen Lawrence, um, and it presents new evidence that challenged the alibis of the men, um, which were shaky from the start. They were very much like, oh, they were with this person. Oh, no, they weren't. They were seen here. They couldn't have been seen there if they were with that person in this place. All over the place, essentially. And also it named former Detective Sergeant John Davidson as receiving money from Clifford Norris, who was the father of one of the accused. The TV programme makes front page news in The Sun, The Daily Mail and The Daily Mirror, clearly having an impact. Um, however, it, as far as it you know brings up these fresh questions and it brings up um, these 
ideas um, of what could have actually happened to Stephen and, and you know, prompts people to, to think about it again as it becomes into be put into the public eye again, especially through the newspapers. Um, it prompts the Met Police to review their evidence. Um, and then in October 2007, the Independent Police Complaints Commission says it's found no evidence of wrongdoing by an officer as alleged in that part of the documentary. So that idea is kind of thrown out. Um, in 2007, November, there is a forensics review um, and there is an examination of evidence gathered and essentially new, new technology that has kind of been developed is used to look at old evidence um, and to find leads. In February 2008, Doreen Lawrence opens a £10 million architectural centre in honour of her son who had aspirations to be um, an architect. Two weeks later, vandals have smashed its windows in a suspected racist attack, which is exactly what the family had said would happen if they buried Stephen in the UK. And it's happened um, literally within weeks of a memorial opening um, in his name and in his honour. In February 2009, it's 10 years on now from the McPherson inquiry, there's still no charge for the murderers of Stephen Lawrence, but 10 years on from the report and um, it's said that the police have made significant progress in reforming, um, but charges of racism remain. However, Justice Secretary Jack Straw says that the Met is no longer institutionally racist. Doreen Lawrence says, you know, the police are still failing black people in Britain. So realistically, how far have you moved from institutional racism? And I mean, 2023, police have been labelled institutionally racist again. Question is, how much did they actually change? My answer is not at all, but that's not for me to, to get into today. Um, in 2010, in July, Gary Dobson is jailed for supplying Class B drugs Um and he's caught within this, like, operation, serious organised crime agency. Um, and so he is actually in prison, not for the murder of Stephen Lawrence, but for drug drug offences. In May 2011, Gary Dobson and David Norris are brought to trial. They are called to face trial following the murder of Stephen Lawrence, following a review of forensic evidence. The Court of Appeal finally decide there's enough new and substantial, keywords, evidence to um, allow the original acquittal of Gary Dobson to be squashed and um, the pair are, are brought to trial. They'd been charged um, the summer before. And in November, the trial begins. Um, and the main point that's heard is that Stephen's DNA is found on the defendant's clothes. And then... In many ways, finally, in January 2012, Dobson and Norris are both found guilty of murder at the end of a six-week trial into Stephen's death. The court hears at this point um, about the evidence found on clothing um, that links them both to Stephen and the murder. The jury takes two and a half days to reach a decision and they receive um, life sentences, quote-unquote. Gary Dobson is jailed for 15 years and two months or a minimum of and David Norris is um, sentenced to 14 years and three months. Now, this is obviously only two names of the, the five that were, you know, splashed on the, the front page and were accused and their names were put on the on an anonymous note on a windscreen of a car near the scene. Um, so, you know, the, the other three men walking free still um, and aren't even kind of 
brought to trial in this way that um, Dobson and Norris have been. But, you know, this is a, a small victory. It's a victory in some ways for the family who, in 2012, 19 years later, nearly 20, they see somebody brought to justice for the murder of their son. Like, I don't know how someone goes 19 years without that small semblance of, of the thing we call justice, them being, you know, brought to jail. Is that really justice? Um, probably not in their eyes. They've lost a son. Um, but I don't really know what kind of strength it would require to, to carry on going for 19 years, fighting for something like this with all the pain and trauma and having to relive it then in the trial and every time kind of something about about Stephen would come up as the timelines go on um in 2013 14 and 15 is um kind of focused on inquiries into um this alleged undercover officer um that was kind of planted within um Lawrence family campaigns um looking at those criticizing the police and there's an inquiry into that by March 2015 um and you know in that they're looking at um police misconduct um and corruption this carries on through October there's an investigation by the National Crime Agency um they confirmed they've been looking at police corruption during the 1993 murder inquiry um, and have been doing so for months. March 2016, um, it's kind of brought out that um, an officer had case to answer as ex-Met police commander Richard Walton um, would have to answer a case for misconduct um, after meeting an undercover police officer during the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. Um, and, you know, these inquiries and all this investigation into the actual police it's like not only are the police supposed to be still finding and linking or, or you know finding more evidence because there were five people that are believed to have killed Stephen Lawrence and only two of them have been brought to justice while they're supposed to be doing that you know there's investigations going on that have to investigate the police because of the way they have gone about um, bringing people to justice or more you know truthfully actually intimidating and um, being part of and trying to um, damage the reputation of the family and people close to Stephen Lawrence so that they can evade criticism um, because to be honest the Lawrence family were applying and rightfully so pressure to them at every step of the way um, so that they could get a semblance of justice um, and all they were doing was trying to diminish the family, trying to make them look and appear, quote-unquote, aggressive and uncooperative, you know? It's very interesting um, that they had to not only fight for justice and to find out who the murderers were and to have them face their day in court and be tried and sentenced, but also they're having to battle the police who just are just literally doing the complete opposite of what their job is. And it just reminds me um, of, of a clip I play all the time on this podcast, and I'm going to play it again just to remind you. We've complained to the police about the police, and nothing's been done. We've complained to magistrates about magistrates, and nothing's been done. We've complained to judges about judges, and nothing's been done. Now it's time to do something ourselves. That statement was made at the Mangrove demonstration and represents the essence of black people's experience in Britain. Something echoed by Doreen Lawrence herself um, 
that I've mentioned earlier in this episode about the experience of black people in Britain dealing with the police is often one that is negative. Um, and, you know, that idea of police investigating themselves and magistrates investigating themselves and nothing being done, essentially, um, just really speaks to something that, you know, the case of the mangrove is the first episode I did on this podcast. It happened in, like, 1970s. And we fast forward to 1993, that's still relevant. We fast forward to 2012 even, 2013, 14, 15, as these inquiries go on, it's still relevant. And we come all the way to 2023 and it's all still relevant. That does not show a country that is growing, developing, becoming less racist in my eyes at all. 25 years on, in April 2018... It was said that an investigation is unlikely to progress into Stephen's murder without significant new information, um, even though there were three people that were still believed to have done it um, out there free. It was hoped that maybe in 2018, at the 25th anniversary of his murder um, and the publicity that that would come with, there might be some new leads or new evidence that might kind of bring forward some progress um, in regards to um, bringing about, you know, complete justice in a way. Um, and so, unfortunately, that, that wasn't achieved, but wanted to share a clip um, of Neville Lawrence, um, Stephen's dad, visiting um, the place where his son lost his life um, at, on the 25th anniversary um, of his death and, and just kind of taking the, the pain that still exists 25 years after such an event um, and the pain that probably doesn't ever go away uh, because it, it's really easy, as, as I've said before, to just think of this as um, an event that triggered a list of legislations and acts and reports, but it's actually people's lives. For 25 years of it now, it's, I have to start thinking whether or not I'm dreaming. It's, that, I've, that I'm, I'm still alive because I thought I would die after, after all what was happening. I, I, I don't know how I've been able to survive so long. I don't know how. And that is essentially, as far as it goes with the kind of timelines of events um, in Stephen Lawrence's case, um, there haven't really been any significant updates since then. And as we move towards the 30th anniversary... Um, it's unlikely or, or so it's said that, you know, anything will change in regards to the verdict and those who already have been sentenced and, you know, the other three um, are free. Um, interestingly, and although her book um, was published in 2006, um, there was a point in it that I really wanted to, to think about because obviously, you know, what has happened to Stephen has happened and a lot of people think about the legacy and, and what's to come next. And Doreen does so much work on on his legacy and what that can mean for justice and equality globally, not just in the UK. Um, and so as much as it would be very important to think about that, I think that's kind of what we're left with and what we live and what we kind of breathe and see when we think about um, the case now, or I'd hope so, especially kind of linked with the work of, of De Montfort University and the Stephen Lawrence Centre. Um, but there was an interesting part in the closing of the book um, 
where she talks about black historical work often speaking to her and she's kind of making up for what she wasn't taught in school and interesting that you know this podcast aims to address the things that people weren't taught in school but she does say um, there are still so few meaningful writings about our black British experience I feel that we are still playing catch up and I would love to see more young black writers addressing the realities of our situation in Britain Um, And I really like that because I think still, even though we are, you know, getting to a place where we think about Britain and and think about the country we're actually living in, there is a lot when it comes to the experiences um, of black British people, black people in Britain, um, that, you know, goes unaccounted, unwritten about, unspoken about. And I think we're seeing at the moment, especially um, an increase in things like black theatre and black film. You've got films like Rye Lane, which is apparently the first black British rom-com, which is crazy to me, 2023. Um, but there's more, you know, books about the black British experience, fictional or, or true, non-fiction. Um, and, and as these histories develop and we start thinking more about what's happening in our own country and our own experiences as black people, um, you know, I like to to think it an important thing to continue within the legacy of Stephen Lawrence. I'm going to close this episode with a piece of poetry from Benjamin Zephaniah called What Has Stephen Lawrence Taught Us? Um, It's on AKL Concepts' YouTube channel, um, but it was posted 11 years ago. And if you listen to the context um, and some of the things being brought up and talked about, um, you'll know it's not something that's come out recently. It is something that's come out before the two um, have been tried and found guilty. And it also comes out when um, there are a lot of questions about um, the police's conduct at the time. It's a really thought-provoking piece that fits quite nicely, I think, into this like chronological episode where we've kind of just gone through um, day-by-day significant events and things that were related to the case um, without kind of picking up too much by way of, um, you know, things that were happening in current and contemporary current conversations with kind of regular people about Stephen Lawrence and, and what that meant for black people in Britain. We know who the killers are. We have watched them strut before us as proud as sick Mussolini. We have watched them strut before us compassionless and arrogant. They paraded before us like angels of death, protected by the law. Is now an open secret. Black people do not have chips on their shoulders. They have injustice on their backs and justice on their minds. And now we know that the road to liberty is as long as the road from slavery. The death of Stephen Lawrence has taught us to love each other and to never take the tedious task of waiting for a bus for granted, watching his parents watching the cover-up begs the question what are the trading standards here why are we paying for a police force that will not work for us the death of stephen lawrence has taught us that we cannot let the illusion of freedom endow us with a false sense of security as we walk the streets the whole world can now watch the academics and the super cops struggling to define institutionalized racism as we continue to die in custody as we continue emptying our pockets on pavements and we continue to ask ourselves why is it so official that black people are so often killed without killers? We are not talking about war or revenge. 
We are not talking about hypotheticals or possibilities. We are talking about where we are now. We are talking about how we live now in this state under this flag. God save the Queen. And God save all those little black children that want to grow up. And God save all the sisters and brothers who love raving because the death of Stephen Lawrence has taught us that racism is easy when you have friends in high places. And friends in high places have no use whatsoever when they are not your friends. Dear Mr. Condon, pop out of Teletubby land and visit reality. Come to an honest place and get some advice from your neighbours. Neglect your wealthier ignorance because we know who the killers are. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the History Hotline. To continue the conversation, follow us on social media at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter. The History Hotline is hosted by Deanna Lynn Cook. Research is done by Zakia Riaz.